Yeah, so on your handout, I'm calling it the Mountain of God. And this will be part one, because there's definitely a part two. We're going to be doing, this is in our Exodus study, the 18th in our series through the book of Exodus. And then the picture that you see there in the background, this is actually in Israel. So you're looking at snow. Most people think Middle East, no snow in Israel. But every year, about nine months out of the year, that's got snow on it. And that mountain is called Mount Hermon. And Hermon, the name is derived from the word sacred. It's a sacred mountain. Peter says, Second Peter, he says, We went up with Jesus, we heard a voice, and we were on a sacred mountain. So scholars put the transfiguration on top of that mountain right there because of uh, what Peter says, and it makes sense they were in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which I'll show you in a minute. So that's Mount Hermon, but that was considered a sacred mountain. There's a, some writings from the intertestamental period called Enoch, and in the book of Enoch, the, the angels that descend, um, that we read about in Genesis, those angels came down on Mount Hermon, because that's the connection of heaven and earth. Now, obviously, Enoch, that's not in our Bible, although many argued that it should have been. Uh, but anyways, this is Mount Hermon. Let me show you on a map real quick. So here's a map of Israel right along the Mediterranean Sea. So on the left side of your screen, Mediterranean Sea. You have uh, Jerusalem, right where that star is. Jerusalem sits up in the mountains. Mount Zion, is. we'll talk about that tonight. Jerusalem is up in the mountains, about 2,300 feet. And then the Dead Sea drops off down to um, minus 1,400 feet in the Dead Sea, just to the east there. The Sea of Galilee to the north, and then, of course, the Dead Sea, and Mount Hermon is the most, oops, sorry, is the northernmost point of Israel. And so right at the top of that map, and what happens at Mount Hermon is all that snow melts, and it creates the Jordan River. So the Jordan River runs north to south, right through the Sea of Galilee, and runs through that Rift Valley and into the Dead Sea. So that's where Mount Hermon is. Again, that's the place where scholars put the transfiguration uh, story, because it's up at Caesarea Philippi, and it's a sacred mountain. So you can see all that snow, as it melts through the, st the rock, you get then a spring that just pops out. There's actually four main springs, but here's one, the spring of Dan, Ein Dan. And so that little sign says it's the largest spring in the Middle East. And it's so cool because you're just standing there next to like a wall and you look the opposite direction and you get a pool of water just bubbling out as, it's, as the water's just coming through the stone. So that creates that spring. That's one of the headwaters to the, to the Jordan River. Another headwater, many of you have been here. This is Caesarea Philippi. And it looks like water out of the rock. It's just a mountainside, and there's a whole stream that comes flowing out of that. 
The water used to flow out of this cave, and then somewhere around 700 AD, there was an earthquake and a geological shift, and the water now just flows right where that circle is. There's some people standing above it. It literally just flows out of a crevice of the rock, and that creates another uh, part of the Jordan River, and that's Caesarea Philippi. So when Jesus, go, right before the transfiguration, Peter declares, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, and then they go up onto a mountain, and we assume it's the sacred mountain right there. So I'm just going to use that one as our picture, even though we're in the middle of Exodus, right? So we're talking about they've come out through the Red Sea, they have the battle, right? Just like every spiritual journey, you go through the chaotic waters, but on your way to worship God, there's going to be a battle, isn't there? There's always spiritual battles to be fought. And what do we want to do? Well, the last two weeks, God says, raise your sights up. I'm your banner, right? Now, God says that in Exodus. Eventually, Jesus is going to say, no, I'm your banner. Well, same thing in our theological way of thinking. The Father and the Son are the same. So we say, aha, we now have a banner. If I'm in a battle, I raise my sights up. I keep my eyes on Jesus. And we'll see that's going to relate to our spiritual growth as we're dealing with the mountain of God as well. So they go out to a mountain and they meet God at Mount Sinai. And of course, then you get the rest of the book of Exodus is there at Mount Sinai. All right. So what's going on with this idea of the mountain of God? And we're going to, we're going to wrestle with this and then we're going to wrestle with one other thing. And we're going to try to put them together over the next couple of weeks because they're really integrated. Uh, but the mountain of God is going to be a biblical idea, biblical. And what I want you to do first is turn to Psalm 15, and we're only going to read right now verse 1. Okay, so Psalm 15 starts verse 1 just like this. It's a question, two questions really, and they're in parallel. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. The mountain of God, it's a holy mountain. And the psalmist wants to know, who can ascend to your holy mountain? Notice, he's got two parallel sentences. Who can dwell in your sacred tent? Well, what's God's sacred tent? The tabernacle. That's what in the rest of the whole last part of Exodus is how do you build that space for God? But the tent is then in parallel to the holy mountain. So we'll see the book that we're going to look at. The mountain prefigures the tent, but the mountain is the dwelling place of God, at least in the ancient Near East way of thinking. It's where heaven and earth connect. So those are basically synonymous. The tent and the holy mountain, that's where you go meet God. Okay, one more psalm, and I want you to turn not too many pages, because it's going to ask essentially the same question. So Psalm 24.3 from the NIV, Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? First, let me say, Ascend. It's an ascending nature. As we've talked about before, spiritual journeys are an ascending uh, nature. So who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? So there's where we get our 
the mountain of God. And so you can see again, mountain right there is going to be in parallel to the holy place. And where's the holy place? Well, that's at the tabernacle. They're synonymous. But one of them gives us the ascending nature. Although, well, the holy place will too in a minute. Okay, what's our question? Who can ascend? Now, this is what's tough um, for Western Christians is this isn't a salvation question. This is a what do you do after you become a Christian question. It's for somebody who's in relationship with God, who can ascend up to his holy mountain. It's not about salvation. It's about, we, could, we would call it possibly sanctification. But I'll explain that as we go. So sometimes we get a little bit um, caught up when the idea of justification through works, and we know that's not, that that's not correct. But once we're saved, now we have to start our ascending spiritual journey, which basically spans the rest of your life. So if there's a little tension there, it's because we're doing this from a Western context. If we were in an Eastern church, like Eastern Orthodox, they have no problem. Salvation includes the ascending nature, is what they, how they view it in the East. So, okay, that's our mountain of God. So here's what we're going to do. Who can ascend the mountain of God? And we have, in our preview, we're going to look at two different things. In the ancient Near East, and so that's what that A-N-E stands for, ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, cosmic mountains are everywhere. Each one of them thought to be the center of the earth, which is a little confusing, but cosmic mountains are, are everything to the ancient Near East. It's the place where you meet your god or the gods. And so what we need to do is talk about the significance of this. In the Bible, of course, we're talking the mountain of God. That's the biblical metaphor, the mountain of God. So who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Now, on your handout, I have um, under number two preview, I have two footnotes. And the very first footnote is a book that I'm relying on at least in part. There's many books that talk about this, but this in part. This book is called The Tabernacle Prefigured, The Cosmic Mountain Ideology in Genesis and Exodus. Sounds very exciting, doesn't it? Uh, Michael Morales, he's a uh, seminary professor, Old Testament biblical studies at a Presbyterian uh, seminary in Greenville. South Carolina. So Greenville Theological Seminary, and it's Presbyterian. So he's done tremendous work in this area. And notice the tabernacle is prefigured by the cosmic mountain. So when you see in parallel, uh, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, who can dwell in your, in your tent, who can live on your mountain, those two go together. So that's our first reference, is the tabernacle prefigured. The second thing we're going to do then is we're going to talk about as we go into the process of ascending to God, there's something that we have to cultivate, and it's our character. So, and not only just cultivation of character, because 
there were lots of people in the ancient world who were trying to cultivate character. It's the cultivation of Christian character. It's the cultivation of your character within the worldview of God and Jesus as the Messiah and the idea of the kingdom of God. And which virtues are we going to put at the top of the uh, value structure for, for our character? So the cultivation of Christian character is very important to our spiritual growth. And we'll talk about why, particularly next week as we look at some of the commandments. Sorry, not next week, two weeks from now. But if you think about um, Many of the commandments are easy to understand. Don't lie, love your neighbor, don't pervert justice, right? If they're so easy to understand, why are they often so difficult for us to implement? Why is it that the church itself can run rampant with problems? Don't we just magically develop the perfect character once we're saved? And the answer is, no. This is Paul saying, you know, I know what to do. I just can't get myself to do it. All he's saying is, I haven't sufficiently developed my character to where everything comes second nature. So it's the cultivation of character, because times of testing will come. And every time we stand firm in our character, we get stronger. And every time we don't, we get weaker. And so if we want to live on the mountain of God, it's cultivation of character, at least, that helps us along the path of spiritual growth. Now, the reference for that that I have footnoted is a book by N.T. Wright. And this one came out in 2012. And if you read the introduction, he'll explain. He, he was asked, a, you know, a few times in a row, um, kind of like, what's the point of a Christian life? What are we supposed to be doing as a Christian now that we're saved? Because sometimes in our, in our effort to talk about salvation and the justification through faith, we miss that so much of the New Testament is talking about this space in the here and now. And so the book, After You Believe, that's now you're on the Christian journey, and then the subtitle, uh, Why Christian Character Matters. It's a wonderful book. If I was ever, I would love to be teaching, teaching seniors in high school, and this would be mandatory reading. Because I think one of the things our country is lacking in is character. People cannot stand in the difficulties of, of life because we haven't sufficiently focused on that. We don't know how to develop character. And it's such an important piece to our faith. So, anyways, what I want to do is bring these two ideas together. So if I take these two books, we want to climb the mountain of God, and we, we need to do that. In order to do that, as we're transforming, as we climb the mountain, part of that transformation is our character development, which then helps us climb the mountain. So it's like the whole way around, we're spiraling upwards on our spiritual journey so it's not, a, it's not a salvation issue, but it's how do we grow into Christ-likeness, which then puts us at the top of the mountain. That's, you'll see that as we talk tonight. Okay, so those are the two references today, and God willing, I'm going to try to connect those. I'll do that again next week, uh, or two weeks from now, and uh, well, you'll judge whether I'm able to connect those or not, and then give me some feedback on that if I wasn't able to do that. 
Now, the other thing is, is that this cosmic mountain idea is everywhere in the Bible. It just jumps out at you. Once you're aware of the idea, and Mount Sinai, of course, is this idea of a cosmic mountain. Once you're aware it's there, you see it all over the place, and you'll see the importance of the way that they're talking about it. All right, so in the ancient Near East, every mountain is, can be, well, can, not is, but can be a cosmic mountain. All through the Old Testament, where do they worship God? On the high places. Why do they go to the high places? Because of this idea right here, the cosmic mountain. So here's what happens. It's the place, the cosmic mountain is the place where the earth rises up into a point, a pinnacle, and the heavens can then descend and come down. And now you've got heaven and earth meeting. The gods must live on the cosmic mountain, right? I mean, this is what everybody thinks, because if the gods are up there, and this is the place where earth, earth connects, well, then it's the natural place for the gods to, to live, to dwell. That's, that, that's what Psalm 1 is asking. Who can dwell with you on the mountain? So, in the Bible, and all over the ancient Near East, the cosmic mountain is everywhere. So, if we look at a couple different places that I have on your handout, the first one, definitely, that we see is the Tower of Babel. You got Iraq today. It's a flat as a pancake in between the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's a flood zone. There are no mountains, so what do you do? You build your own. And what are the Tower of Babel trying to do? We're going to build this to the heavens. It would be in the in in that area, ziggurat. And so a ziggurat is the tower that goes to the heaven. In fact, Babel, the name Babel means the gates of the gods. It's the place where the gods enter and only the high priest or the king ascends to meet with the gods and they have their little meeting. That's what that Babel represents. So it's the place where heaven and earth meet. Mount Sinai, of course. God comes down on Mount Sinai, and then you get people ascending. You get a group, not just Moses. We'll see in Exodus 24, there's a group of people that ascend, but they don't go all the way. Only one person ascends all the way to the top. That's Moses. And if you think about, so what God does if everywhere in the ancient Near East has mountains as the place where heaven and earth meet, where's God going to take them to meet them? Well, he takes them using their conceptual idea of what the cosmos are like. He takes them to a mountain. They get it. We kind of have to go around about to talk about mountains and the importance of it to then realize why that's so significant in the book of Exodus. Why does God meet them on that mountain? Let's do another one in the Bible, Mount Gerizim. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. She says, we worship God on this mountain over here, Mount Gerizim. You guys worship the one down in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Jesus says, ah, but there will be a day we're all going to worship together, right? But Mount Gerizim, very tall mountain, and that's where the Samaritans worship God. And there's a temple at the top of that. Of course, Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. In the Bible, in the biblical telling, no matter what direction you're coming from, north, south, east, or west, if you're heading towards Jerusalem, you're going up. When you get to Jerusalem, if you're heading to the temple, even though you might be walking downhill, you're going up because you go up to the temple. 
When you get into the temple, you go up to the altar. So they, every, no matter what direction you're coming from, we use down for south and up as north, but in the Bible, it's whether you're going to Jerusalem or away from Jerusalem. And, by the way, if you're a Jew from the United States or Canada or anywhere else in the world, and you make your first pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it's Aliyah. And Aliyah means to ascend. So if, you're, if you were born in the United States in a Jewish community, you'd never been to Israel, it's called Aliyah to go to, you're taking your Aliyah to Jerusalem. You're ascending to the temple. And then, of course, the transfiguration. As Jesus goes up on that mountain, the heavens are right there, and Jesus is transfigured. So, it's all over the Bible, and of course, the focus is, in Jerusalem, if we were living in Jerusalem in the first century, we would walk over to the, where the Temple Mount is, and we would say, that's the point on earth where God comes down, where God meets. We know God's everywhere, but the point is, is it becomes this holy, sacred place where God meets here on earth. So that's the Cosmic Mountain. It's everywhere in the Bible. I'll show you one quote. I put this quote on your sheet just so you could have it. This is uh, Morales, who wrote the, ta the Tabernacle pre Prefigured. He's talking about the Sacred Mountain. This is his introduction to Sacred Mountain, or the, the Cosmic Mountain. He says, the mountain is sacred the dwelling place of the gods, the intersection between heaven and earth. That's what the mountain represents. The central and highest place of the world, and the term that scholars use is axis mundi. Now, it doesn't even have to be the tallest place in the world, but in, in the minds and in the uh, cosmological thinking of a religion, it's the place where the heavens and earth meet. So for Christians, early Christians, it's the place of the cross. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You have up on a, on a rock outcropping, the cross is on the top, the tomb is right below it. It's like a direct line from heaven all the way down to the underworld. And in some Eastern traditions, they take it even further and they say the grave of Jesus is right above the grave of Adam, the very first Adam. Now, that's not literal, but the point is, it's on that axis of wherever the sacred, most sacred place in, on earth is. Okay, last little part of this, he says, the mountain is the central and highest place of the world and the foundation and navel of creation. Now, that gets a little bit strange too, but in the Bible, uh, in particular, and I can't remember exactly the verse, it's, I think it's Judges 9, 37, I believe, it's either 34 or 37. Um, your Bible probably doesn't use the word navel. It comes from the center of the land, but the Hebrew word underneath, navel. And they're coming down off the mountain, probably Mount Gerizim, which is the holy mountain, and they're calling it the center, the navel of the earth. And what they mean by that is, if God, if the Temple Mount is the place where God's power comes, it's where we get nourished spiritually. So church would be like a spiritual navel, just like the navel uh, of a human being is the place that the, was nourished by the mother. And so that's why, that's where they get that idea from. But enough about navels here. Um, the point is, 
this is how important it is. And you find it in the Bible, even though it might not jump out at you in our English. Uh, that, that's really my point. Okay, um, that's Cosmic Mountain. We'll come back to it in a minute. What about the spiritual journey? What about the goal of a Christian life? And so I put a quote from N.T. Wright on your sheet number four. But if we look at this, we'd say, okay, here's our holy mountain. Who can dwell at the top of your hill, at the top of your mountain? God comes down. That becomes his dwelling place. And humanity is supposed to ascend out of our fallen abyss and rise up to meet God. And that's the question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? That's the biblical picture of the way that we grow uh, spiritually. So this is what N.T. Wright says in the book, After You Believe. And again, this is on your handout so that you can just read it. Now he's talking about some, he's talking about developing our character. So I'm going to start mid-sentence. Uh, he's talking about these steps that are literally, and he says, character transforming. The steps we're to take are to transform your character. And for someone to come into faith later in life, like I did, uh, it was, I started going to church around 31. And by 32, I really got going. It felt like I, you know, 31, I was just kind of treading water. By 32, I felt like I was finally got some traction and I could tell there was a transformation happening inside of me. I didn't know what, I couldn't fully articulate it, but as I look back now, big changes because I went from heathen to saved, you know. If you grow up a Christian, you might not have that big that big of switch, but it's character transform transforming. I wasn't really a heathen heathen, but you know what I'm saying. I I could feel the transformation happening. Okay, so he says, these are character transforming. The aim of the Christian life, this is N.T. Wright, in the present time, that means in your life right now, what's the aim as a Christian? The goal you are meant to be aiming at once you have come to faith, the goal which is within reach, meaning God gives us the capability to, tr to cultivate our character in anticipation of the final life to come, that's the afterlife, and what he says is the goal is the fully a life fully formed. That's the formation of character, the fully flourishing of Christian character. And we'll at the end we'll talk about why the Christian part is so important. All right, so that's N.T. Wright's vision of what the goal of being a Christian is. So, if you turn over your sheet, I want to talk just about then what does it mean to ascend the mountain of God. What's the metaphor that we're in? Because clearly we see we don't need to travel to wherever Mount Sinai is and hike to say we've ascended the mountain of God. It's a metaphor that the Bible uses. So what does it mean? And I'm going to take three steps. First, I'm going to talk just using modern language. Just modern language of how we view transformation. Second, we're going to go to religious language. And third, I'll put it in biblical language. So I just want you to know when I first start talking about this, it's all in modern language. So for a very long time, and this is what I, the, when, when the, the Old Testament is really getting at, is trying to move people 
out of the space of this being uh, captive by a way of thinking. Part of the exodus, part of the message is we're being liberated from the way of thinking. So all humanity has a problem. We're, we're at the bottom of the mountain. We haven't even started going upwards yet. And for 6,000 years, we've been working on this. And the problem with human beings is we are prone, and let me make sure, we're prone to delusion. We're prone to self-deception. We're prone to being out of touch with reality. Make sure you hear prone to. I'm not declaring that anybody's delusional. But we can very easily fall into self-delusion. We can be deluded by bad teachings, or uh, we can fall into delusion by bad teachings. We have problems of the way that we see the world. Um, and it's just the reality of being a human being. We're easily led astray. We're like the sheep, right? Sheep are not smart animals. So, I mean, one area, I mean, we, we, you could probably all think of, even within Christianity, ideologies that go off the rails that we say, well, I'm not sure I see that in the, in the Bible. Um, political ideologies, they can run amok, and people can get stuck in those ideologies. And so we have to be aware that we are prone to delusion, self-deception, uh, being out of touch with, with reality. What happens down here at the bottom is we end up suffering. Human beings suffer, both external because of, you know, all the forces that we see in the world, wars and all of that, um, that are fought because we're not in touch with reality. And then internal. If we're not, if we can't see as God sees the world, we end up suffering because we have faulty expectations. And anyways, so you end up suffering. And the goal for those communities that are that are lost is usually power, right? You feel powerless, and you're you're searching for power. How do I gain power? How do I uh, gain material blessings to try to stop all the suffering that I'm that I'm? So there's a big problem with human beings. That's the delusion or living in a delusion. And one of the things that I have to think of. Oh, let me give you one quote. Um, Jeremiah 17. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, isn't it? I mean, we're so easily led astray. Now, the problem is, whose heart? If I read that, I'm like, oh, that guy's heart is deceived, right? Is that what Jeremiah is saying? Or is Jeremiah saying, no, Scott, your heart too can be deceitful. So one of the problems we have is if we say something like, human beings are prone to delusion, and I'm a human being, then I have to deal with the fact that I'm prone to the, I'm the one prone to the delusion, right? You know, Jesus says, don't point out the speck in someone else's eye uh, before removing the, one, the, the log in your own eye. We can't see our blind spots. You know, God doesn't have to give us a command, rationalize your behavior, right? He doesn't have to do that. We do that perfectly on our own. We'll rationalize all our behavior. So, Humanity is stuck, right? Now, what's the opposite? What if the humanity could ascend out of that, right? Well, we ascend, we become in touch with reality. Now, I'll get to the, the, the biblical view is that's God, right? We get in touch with reality. 
We break free of delusion and self-deception, so important that we see things as they truly are. When you do this, you end up transcending suffering. It doesn't mean bad things don't happen or you don't get sick or anything like that, but you see you have a different perspective of the world and suffering takes on a different uh different power in your life. That's just like with many Christians who understand the suffering that happens and will withstand suffering better than somebody who doesn't have faith. And then instead of a goal of power and wealth and material blessings, your, your goal is to alleviate the suffering of others. The goal is to restore the order that's been broken here on earth. And so we have these two, two things set against each other. The bottom of the mountain is delusion. The top of the mountain, you're seeing things clearly. Okay, now that's modern language. Let me put it in religious language. If we're at the bottom of the mountain, we would say humanity is fallen. And fallen is shorthand for all the problems that human beings deal with. We don't articulate fallen state very well. What are the problems in a fallen state? Well, our eyes are blind, we can't see perfectly or at all. Our ears don't hear. So humanity's in a fallen state. And by the way, humanity fallen is not in the Bible. It shows up in an outside writing. We use that term so often, you'd think that it's in the Bible, but it's not. So it's our description or with the major problem with humanity. We're fallen. Well, if we can rise above being fallen, we begin to see that God is the ultimate in reality. We begin to see ourselves and the world as God sees the world, right? What would happen if you could see other people as God sees them? You would transform how you look at people. That's part of the transformation is we see ourselves, we see the circumstances around us, we see others as God sees them. That's why we want to go up to ascend towards God. Okay, that's religious language. What does the, how does the Bible say it? They say, look, wisdom. Wisdom is seeing the world through the reality of what is. So, from God's perspective, that you can deal with life in reality, connected to reality. And wisdom is set against biblical foolishness. So, when you read your Bible and you see the comparisons, so much of our Bible is wisdom literature. This is what it wants you to do. See the world. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with living the world in a way that you're connected to the reality of the way the world is functioning and exists. So wisdom and foolishness are set against each other. That's biblical. And what's the famous verse about, uh, about the fool? Right? I have, it on your, I have it on your handout. A fool says in his heart, right, what's the biggest delusion of a human being? Is that there is no God. So a fool says in his heart, there's no God. Well, if you don't think there's a God, then you don't imagine that anybody's going to judge you at any point, then all of my behavior, as long as I can get away with it, is perfectly fine. And we would say, <laughs> no, no, no. There is a judge, right? And the judge will make things right. So you don't get away with anything. If you can see the world, 
through the eyes of God, your behavior changes. Then another great one, this is Proverbs uh, 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord, notice the fear, and what they mean by that is you begin to see the reality of who God is, not just fear like I'm afraid of God. I see who God is. The fear of the Lord, and then notice this part, is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. You're not full of wisdom yet. How do I launch myself from this foolishness into a world where I'm actually experiencing wisdom? The beginning of that process is the fear of the Lord. Once I can begin to see God for who he is and me in the world, now wisdom can start taking over. But it begins by recognizing God. But it's all put in the mountain uh, metaphor. So why do we climb the mountain? For these exact reasons right here. So last thing on your sheet, growth process. This is what we want to do. What's, we have this goal, right? We're, we're, we're stuck down here at the bottom. Now, we recognize God. That's the first step. The, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We recognize God. We're now on a pathway, but we need a goal. We need a goal. We need something to set in front of us that's going to help us aim in life. And what's our goal? What's our nez? What's the banner that we talked about the past two weeks? It's Jesus. He's the, he's the image at the top of that, at the top of that mountain that we are going to attempt to transform to be just like in our character. That's the goal. So we have a goal. Step one, if you, don't, if you have a lesser goal, you have a false idol. Any lesser, if you say money is my goal, then you'll start acting like money, cold, hard cash. You put Jesus as your goal, you'll start acting like Jesus. So we have, we have the proper goal. We start spiritual practices so that we can connect with God and through the Holy Spirit. We cultivate spiritual practices, uh, regularly attending worship services, community, reading the Bible. Study is a form of um, spiritual attunement because you, you see God deeper. You see things in God that you didn't see before. So study is important. Solitude and journaling and prayer and all those great spiritual disciplines all help us attune to hear God more clearly. Then, as we mentioned earlier, you have to cultivate character. Because if we're not cultivating character, the moment of testing that comes will fall. And will sink. Notice the Israelites see all of God doing all these amazing miracles. They get out into the desert and all they do is complain. I want to go right back to Egypt. Because I'm not, you know what, this is, the food's bad. I could just go back to Egypt. At least I'll be happy with the food. And that's what happens to people. They're not, they stop the ascending nature. So once we have this spiritual attunement and we have the proper goal and we're cultivating our character, we rise up and now the world begins to change inside us. The world begins to change around us. Last week, I didn't put this on your sheet, but this is review. We talked about Colossians 3. Paul gives us in a, in a bit of an image, a pyramid, and he's talking about Hey, you're going to put on a new self and you're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. You're in an ascending manner. You start down here, 
You're moving up. And what makes it distinctly Christian is the top virtue is love. So love, not emotion, love, virtue love. You practice love, not the emotion. And that gets confusing. You see the other person as God sees them. You see all their faults, but you don't run away. You have compassion instead. You want the best for every human being that you meet. Right? You love your neighbor as yourself. And part of the another virtue that, that's specifically Christian, because it's not in the Greco-Roman world, is forgiveness. We become people who forgive. It becomes second nature that when someone uh, uh, offends us, you immediately go to forgiveness because it's the only way to get to loving them. And that's why Jesus on the cross can forgive the people who are putting him to death. We can imagine doing that, but it's because we have to cultivate that virtue. Okay. And then underneath that, compassion and kindness and humility and all of that. So this is what Paul's doing. He's, he's bringing you up that mountain. Um, okay. And I see we're, we're a little bit over the time. I apologize for that. Turn, if you have your Bible real quick, I want to go back to Psalm 15. This is how I'll finish tonight. Sorry, I know we got started a little bit, a few minutes late because I was wrestling with my presentation here. But Psalm 15 starts, it's a very short psalm. He starts with the question that we started with. Who can ascend, right? Who can dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Not salvation. Who then can go up that mountain, right? That we should all be ascending. Now the psalmist is going to go give you the character traits. He's not giving you the prayer to pray or anything. It's character traits. And so he's talking about the people who believe in God at that moment. Right? So let's look at the character traits. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is right, who speaks truth from their heart. Now, it doesn't say that they are righteous in their being. It means that you do what is right. Well, all of us know the right thing to do. We just fail to do it. We know we should speak truth but we don't always. Verse 3, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur at others. All of us can achieve that if we tried. That's not insurmountable as a Christian. In fact, that's what we expect other Christians to behave. Look at verse 4. Who dis now, this one's a tough one. Who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. We're supposed to honor those who fear the Lord. And then my favorite part, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. How many people will go faulty on their oath when it starts to hurt them? You have to have a strong character to not fall away from that. The person who doesn't or who keeps an oath even when it hurts, who doesn't change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept the bribe. So, a bribe. So just notice, it's all character development. If you have that type of character, you will not be shaken. You will be able to withstand the pressures of the world. You'll live at the top of the mountain. That's why this book right here, After You Believe, Why Christian Character is So Important. 
So that's our mountain of God. And it's the metaphor for all of life, right? The mountain goes up towards the heavens, God comes down, and when God comes down, then we ascend in the opposite direction, and that's where we commune, all metaphorically. We do it at church, we do it in our prayer time, we do it in our life, but that's one of the main metaphors of the Bible. Um, how do we get into that presence of God? The tabernacle will eventually replace the mountain, but the tabernacle is at Mount Zion, so it's, you get the same thing. So, okay, hopefully I was able to pull those two ideas together, climbing the mountain, care, importance of, of character development, and, and attaining wisdom. That's why so much of the Bible is wisdom literature. How do you walk in the world that will produce good over a long period of time? That's one of the definitions of what do we do with, or how do we attain wisdom? Well, we attain wisdom by get, being connected to God and then sharpening our character development. Now, what we're going to do next time is we'll go to some of the commandments and look at some of the commandments, because what we want to do is not ignore the commandments from the Old Testament. We want to look at them and say, what's the wisdom? What, what's the piece of wisdom that I can take with me, that I can understand this commandment better? And then look out into the world and see how that commandment is failing the world. Nobody's keeping it, and the world's in chaos. And we'll try to do that with some commandments that hopefully will be like, oh, you know, it's not just the Ten Commandments. There's a lot more in Exodus that we should be paying attention to and how it affects our world. So, okay, that's part one. <laughs>